Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525 and now back to lifeline with craig roberts when you think of it so much of life has become temporary there are those of us with a little bit of gray around the temples old enough to remember the fact that well today no longer do you collect gold watches after say 25 or 30 years of service to one company we no longer raise families and retire in the same home where we spend ultimately 50 or more years in. And our marriages, well, they no longer make it to what was once a typical golden anniversary. Many of these challenges in the way life has changed, particularly related to marriage, goes down to one core issue, that it's becoming increasingly more challenging under the changes in society today to establish and maintain solid marriage relationships. But before we completely give up hope, there are some important key steps that you can today implement in your married life to change things around in a most dynamic and God-honoring fashion. Joining me now is Dr. Greg Smalley, Executive Director of Marriage and Family Formation at Focus on the Family. And Dr. Smalley, great to have you on the program. Hey, Craig. Thank you so much for having me today. Well, isn't it amazing how so much of life in just, you know, maybe a generation or two has changed so dramatically. Remember Dad working for the same company for 30-something years? They still live in the same house that I was raised in when I was a kid. And today, all of this has changed. We don't keep our jobs as long. We don't live in the same house as long. And sadly, we don't stay in marriages as long either. It's true. And I tell you what, you know, way back in the 70s through the, the, I I think one of the biggest things is the whole no-fault divorce. And uh, I I don't think people really realize um, how much that has really hurt us. And and, and that's why I'm thrilled as a country that right now, you know what, marriage is, is, is in the news all over the place. And I'm hoping that part of the outcome will be that we really, you know, uh, that, that we realize, like Hebrews 13.4 says that marriage should be honored by all, that, that we really learn as a country again. How do we honor marriage? What is that going to look like? Here's the absolute irony. You talk about no-fault divorce, and what we're really saying is, well, if it's nobody's fault, then it must be everybody's fault. Right. Uh, we, we all play a role in this. And toward that end, you've come up with some key steps that I think we can go to school on today to help people better understand the important relational moments. And, you know, we know that, that good marriages take time and they take work. But if you begin to break it down into all of the, the incremental elements, a lot of this stuff, quite frankly, is just good common sense if we just take the time enough to examine it and begin putting it into practice in our daily relational lives. Absolutely. You know, I, I, I believe one of the best things that we can do for our marriage is that we've got to learn how to work through and manage conflict. You know, there's a lot that we need to do for marriage, but if we started there, because it's inevitable, it's going to happen. You know, you can't take two people, you know, who have different personalities and genders and and all these things and and expect that they're not going to bump into each other, that they're not going to, you know, have conflict. They're not going to hurt and, 
in in wound each other in in and the problem that I see is that so many people are, are, you know, are afraid to go through conflict. They avoid it. They sweep it under the rug. They, they, they want to ignore it. And, and the truth is that conflict can be used in our marriage to strengthen our marriage. That's when I get to learn more about my wife, her feelings, her needs. I get to learn more about myself. You know, and you know, maybe it, it shows something's going on in our marriage that needs to change. I mean, conflict really is a good thing if we can learn how to do this in, in, in a healthy way. And, and this is so key, because what you're suggesting then, Dr. Smalley, is that, in, and oftentimes we'll couch this in terms of, well, I can't get along with my wife because, and we, you know, we'll pile a bunch of baggage there, or, or the husband, whatever the case might be, suggesting that there's some sort of a, a personality defect here. But what you're really talking about, and I took note of the fact, you didn't say avoid conflict. You said manage it, right. be able to work through it. So this isn't a, a personality defect. It's a skill deficit. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, because I think a lot of times we use the phrase even conflict resolution. And I don't know about you, but I don't, I, I don't think the goal is to try to figure out some resolution so much as it is the process. Can we develop a process that we can use anytime conflict comes up. So whether we resolve it or not, it's not the issue. I think it's how we do it. And unfortunately, most couples do this in a way that just doesn't work. And one of the biggest things that I see with couples is that we're taught to when we get into an argument, when we get hurt, when there's a problem, that we need to just hang in there and power through it and try to talk it through. And I think that is the biggest and worst advice that you can, you can give a couple. Because one, I don't think it works. When, when you're hurt, when you're wounded, when you're upset, when you're frustrated with your spouse, what I think is going on is you get these buttons of yours, these emotions get pushed, these buttons get pushed, and then your, your heart literally kind of closes. You shut down, and then you just start reacting. And, and, and in that mode, there is no way that you're listening. You're not able to hear. You're not able to understand. And that's why when people are in an argument, they need to kind of separate from each other. They need to take a break, a time out from each other. But I'm telling you, Craig, we're not taught to do that. We are taught to try to power through it. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. I mean, it's, it's setting people up for massive failure. And that's really what, what I did in the book was to try to show you here's a process. Because what, what I love is that if you take a break and work on you first, you need to learn how to get your heart back open. Because when people have open hearts, we're able to talk all day long. And this is so key because, you know, I would imagine in, in your role as executive director of the Marriage and Family Formation at Focus on the Family, you're hosting a nationally syndicated radio talk show, you've got patients, you've written books, the whole nine yards. Yeah. That you talk and hear from people all the time, this whole issue of conflict. It sounds to me that this is this is perhaps then less about conflict. At the end, it it's not this major difference between the two of us. In fact, we both both sides of the marriage really want the same thing, don't we? That yeah. is, to 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 the, the right to be heard and the need to hear. Right. We want the, you know people want connection. We want we want to be connected. We want intimacy. You know we we want to be heard, understood, listened to, like you were talking about. And it's just sadly what happens is that in that moment that we're hurt or in conflict or whatever it is, that, that we're, we're, we, we are just taught to tr- keep trying to, to push through that. And, and, and it doesn't work. 
That's why one of my very favorite verses is in Matthew 7, 2 through 5. It says, Why do you look at the dust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the log in your own eye? And I love that the scriptures give an order. It says, First, first, get the log out of your, your own eye. Then you can see clearly. And, and how I relate that back to conflict is saying, Okay, when, when you're in the middle of an argument, you have to understand that your heart has now closed. You are shut down. And when you are shut down, you are more likely to, to react, to say things, to do things, to retreat, you know, in, in a way that, that's not going to help you get to where you want to be. Therefore, quit trying to talk this through first. That's part two. Part one is that I need to go off by myself and, and figure out what is going on. I need to let my emotions settle down. I need to, you know, for me, you know, prayer is such a great time to, to just to settle down, to get God's perspective, to say, hey, God, I don't know what's going on, but boy, I'm, I'm mad about something. What, what, what is the button that got pushed? You know, what, how, how do you want me to, to treat my wife? You know, you created her. Help me to understand her. You, you see what I'm saying? I mean, if you work on you first and get your heart back open, see, then you can come back into that conversation. And, it, and, and I promise you, it will go so much differently. We fail at communicating through conflict because usually both hearts are closed, and, and you just can't talk through that. And, and so often, though, we also, Dr. Smalley, put so many expectations and demands on the other Oh yeah, that we can't control, and yet what we can control we do nothing with. So right. if we're concerned, for example, about the fact that we feel as if we're not being heard, our spouse is not hearing me, and yet we've closed down and we're so focused on what we're not getting that we ourselves are not hearing our spouse either. Right. Well, one is an observation, but the other is something that I can actively change and that I have 100% control over. Totally. I mean, that's, again, I can, I can control me. I can choose how I want to show up and, and, and that's why I, I say to people, you've, you've got to have a break. You've just got to step away. Tell your spouse, you know what, right now I can't think clearly. I'm shut down. I'm going to go, but I'll be back. And, and, and that's, I think that's the, the, what we do to then set up the opportunity to really to work through conflict. If I can get my heart back open, see, now I'm, I, and I tell people, you, well, you know how your heart is open is when you want to be a listener, when you are willing to be a listener. I love in the, in the Chinese language, there's the, 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 the character, the symbol for the verb to listen is made up of three kind of little characters that come together. One stands for eyes, one for ears, and the other for open heart. Isn't that cool? Mm. So to, to listen is with your ears, your eyes, and your open heart. That's the evidence to me that you're ready to enter back into that conversation, that dialogue with your spouse when you are going, I want to I seek to understand you rather than me being understood. Dr. Greg Smalley is with us today. He, of course, Executive Director of Marriage and Family Formation at Focus on the Family. Information, too, on the web at smalleymarriage.com. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of the conversation as this edition of Lifeline with Dr. Greg Smalley continues here on KFAX. 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And welcome back to Lifeline. Craig Roberts along with our special guest in this edition of the program. He's Dr. Greg Smalley, Executive Director of Marriage and Family Formation at Focus on the Family. He co-hosts Everyday Relationships and is the president and founder of the Smalley Relationship Center. You can get more information on the web in addition to information about his more than 40 books on the topic at smalleymarriage.com. That's smalleymarriage.com. Dr. Smalley, just before the break, we were talking about the need to to kind of step back from the conflict instead of just trying to pile through, because that piling through process often means just making a lot of noise, uh, working a lot, very hard to be heard, but not really hearing. Right. Um, and you made mention, I found it fascinating, t- toward the end of the last segment about the Chinese character for hearing that has to do with both open eyes, open ears, and an open heart. So I guess it's kind of pulling back, moving into neutral corners, so to speak, and taking account. It's amazing how many arguments will, will suddenly build up and gain momentum, and that train is heading down the track with, with no brakes, when we take a moment to step back and really ask ourselves the question, what is this all about? We either find out that there's a whole lot to do about nothing or that it's connected to some other hurt or pain that happened in our life that, that might have just been sort of reactivated by something that our spouse did or said. That's right. That's right. And that's why I, I'm, I'm telling people that, that usually it's not that we can't communicate, that we've got to learn some new communication method telling you the problem of why we have a hard time communicating is when your heart closes you've got these buttons that are all stirred up and you're frustrated you're shut down you're now in a reaction mode and that's why the 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 biggest most important step in learning how to communicate through conflict is you dealing with you and you can't do that in the presence of your spouse you really do need to step back and and that's why i always tell people when you're sort of in this time out spot, what you're trying to do is, one, there, there is power in putting a name to how you're feeling. And again, when we're in the middle of a conflict, we're not even able to think about how am I feeling right now and put a word to that. And, and yet there's research that was done that showed that when in the middle of an argument, when people separate and they, and they think through, okay, what is it that I'm feeling right now? I'm feeling, you know, devalued, disrespected, uh, uh, not good enough, like a failure. I mean, when you put a word to how you're feeling, it, it physiologically calms you down. It, 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 they see on these, these brain scans to where the, the amygdala, which is your fight-or-flight center, it's kind of the emotional part of your brain, brain is all lit up. When you identify how you feel, the, the brain scans show that, that all of a sudden that information moves to the prefrontal cortexes, which is how, where you make good decisions. Mm. And so even, even the act of simply going, all right, I'm separated now. I'm on my own. What? What? Yeah. What? How do I feel? What is? What's the word that I would use? It just. It has tremendous power. It's that simple. And then I. I think as Christians, what's so cool is that we take then those emotions to the Lord, and we're asking for His truth. What is true about me? Is it true that I'm a failure? Is it true that I'm being disrespected? What's true about my wife? You know. And and I and I love that. That this, so I think there's so many verses. That, that talk about how, 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 you know, God is truth, that he gives us the spirit of truth, the spirit of truth will lead us to all truth, you know, that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And that's what I, I love. You, when you're then able to do that, you now can come back in and just do what you were born to do, which is you can talk. 
through things with your spouse when you're calmed down and your heart's open. And it's you know, at really the end of the, that simple. And at the end of the day, reopening those lines of communication or sometimes establishing them for the first time, as much as that seems to be uh, particularly intimidating, particularly for us guys that don't do a real good, good job emoting, uh, and we, we, we get very intimidated by this idea, you know, that sense that, well, my wife does all the talking and I do all the listening, things of that sort. You've put together a list of five daily relational moments that I think, Dr. Smalley, really go a long way toward teaching us just how easy it can be to communicate at that level so that the needs are getting met by, by both sides of the, of the couple. Take a moment, if you would, in the, the four, three or four minutes that we have left in our conversation. Just walk us through, if you would, these five daily important relational moments. Absolutely. You know, and why I think these moments are so important is that I think you could, you could kind of boil everything down to doing this. If you want to have a great marriage, you need to, one, learn how to manage conflict well. But then on the other hand, you've got to learn how to invest, proactively invest in your marriage every day. Marriage doesn't have cruise control. You can't set a setting and think it's going to be okay. So as long as you're managing conflict, investing in your marriage, I mean, I'm telling you, you're going to have a good marriage. And I think one of the best ways to invest in your marriage, is instead of adding all kinds of new things to your already busy plate, you know, because, Craig, I, I see that, that so many people are just we're so busy, exhausted, worn out, too much going on, overflowing plate, that when I tell people, hey, instead of adding, you know, five more things you need to do now for your marriage, what if we just looked at what's going on every day and take advantage of those, use those everyday moments to strengthen your marriage? For example, every day you're going to leave, leave the house you know, during the work week. How you choose to leave your home can either strengthen your marriage or take away from your marriage. And, and, and what we know is if you take a moment and just, you know, let's say you, you pray for your spouse, you encourage them, and, and, and give each other a kiss goodbye, that right there you've strengthened your marriage. That should take no more than 10 seconds. See, you're not adding something else. You will leave the house. How you choose to leave can, can strengthen your marriage. You're going to return home. You know, you, how you come home and reenter your house in the evening can be used to strengthen your marriage or not. So when I come in, do I beeline for the TV? Do I beeline for the kids? Or do I walk up to my wife and say, hey, great to see you. You know, love you. Give her a kiss. Can't wait to spend time with you tonight. You I mean, just something that simple. Again, not at, you don't add anything. You're going to walk into your home. Just walk in, into your home in a way that's going to strengthen your marriage. Every, you're going to fall asleep at some point. How you say goodnight to your spouse can strengthen your marriage. Simply taking 30 seconds to pray for your spouse, to thank him or her for something they did throughout the day that you appreciated. Thanks for hey, picking up my dry cleaning today. That was a big help. I mean, you see what I'm saying? It's just, it's, it's identifying some key moments. You know, during the day as we're gone, you know, can I not send a quick little text message to my wife? I mean, I've got to be gone. Why not just send her a text message and, and just tell her, I love you thinking about her. I actually did this the other day and accidentally, I mean, I got into sort of this, this crazy little message to my wife, sent it to my boss <laughs> by mistake. And so he texts me back going, please tell me this was meant for your yeah, wife. I love you thinking about you. Absolutely. <laughs> and I said, no, it's for you. But uh, that made our meeting awkward. But anyway, <laughs> but you see what I'm saying? I mean, there, there are moments. 
You know, for you, the moment might be um, we're, we're taking our kids to their sporting practice. You know, well, can you use that to, to ask each other questions? You can listen to the radio. You can do a bunch of stuff. You can be on the phone. Or we can ask each other just some, some great questions. Hey, you know, what, you know, how'd today go? How are you feeling? How are things going between you and the kids? You know, what's one thing God's teaching you as a plate? You see, there, there are moments that go on that I think most of us just let these moments go by. And, and, and let's take those back and use them as things that can really strengthen our marriage. And, of course, the irony is it doesn't take a lot of time. It doesn't take a very little min- min- minimal amount of effort. It's simply giving a greater sense of importance to our spouse, to a sense of honoring them and valuing them. What's the old saying? It's, you know, it's the little things in life that count. Right. And it would be amazing to see how far. And I would just, I want to challenge both the ladies and the men in the audience. Try it. Oh, you don't understand how difficult things are in my marriage right now. Purpose in your heart today to start tomorrow. When you get up in the morning, compliment your spouse Honey, I'm glad that uh, you're my spouse. I hope you have a great day. Um, speak words of encouragement into their life as, you know, your husband is going off and you know he's got the big meeting today. Say some words of encouragement. Stop at the door for a minute, guys, before you're leaving and saying, Honey, I know it takes a lot of time and energy to, to maintain this household. I know you've got a big agenda today. You've got to take the kids to soccer practice, and you've got a doctor's appointment. You've got to go shopping and all these things. I just want to let you know I value you, and I recognize and appreciate the hard work that you do in creating such a loving home for us. Wow, how far that will go. And then, as Dr. Smalley points out, look, even the guys, we got time to check the box scores in the middle of the day. Send a quick text. Try not to send it to your boss, though. <laughs> and, and, let, and let your spouse know, thinking of you, babe, I hope you're having a great day. Can't wait to see you tonight. When you arrive back home, pause for a moment. You realize that your spouse, if she's been home all day, uh, and maybe young kids in your family, she'd been really deprived of any adult communication. She's she's eager to connect with you. You, on the other hand, you've been out in the working world all day long. You don't want another conversation. Find a moment, if you can, between the two of you to just acknowledge each other and each other's needs for a moment. And then, finally, as you end the day, uh, to show a sense of gratitude and appreciation, a moment in prayer together, and if you implement these steps, I think you'll see an amazing turnabout in your marriage relationship. Dr. Greg Smalley, Executive Director of Marriage and Family Formation at Focus on the Family. More information, too, on the web at his website, smalleymarriage.com. And, Dr. Smalley, thanks so much for the time today. Oh, Craig, my pleasure. Thanks for all that you're doing to encourage marriage. You bet. Keep up the good work on your end as well. There's Dr. Greg Smalley from Focus on the Family. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Prayer indeed does change things, as my next guest has found out. He is Dr. David Levy. He practices neurosurgery in Southern California. His articles have been widely published in a variety of neurosurgical journals, and he's an accomplished speaker and a co-author of a brand new book entitled Gray Matter. A neurosurgeon discovers the power of prayer one patient at a time. And Dr. Levy, thanks so much for taking time to be with us on the program this evening. It's good to be with you, Craig. Uh, I found your, your book and your observations on the power of prayer very encouraging, particularly in a day and age when there, there's so much being bandied about, 
concerning what's happened with uh, health care in America. I got into an interesting discussion with a friend of mine who's involved in health care, and there have been some discussion about the fact that uh, more and more he's finding uh, both physicians and hospitals referring to the people that come through their doors as clients, to which I took umbrage and said, you know, uh, you may want to let your colleagues know that we patients don't prefer to be referred to as clients because it just seems to kind of reduce us down to nothing more than somebody who helps bring money. And while I understand this is an important part of what needs to be done to, you know, keep the lights on in the hospital and, and to pay, uh, you know, the folks that provide the services that they do to keep us all healthy. Nevertheless, it, it was encouraging to see the perspective that you share inside the pages of Gray Matter that there are some doctors out there who, uh, who still want to have a good bedside manner and who, in fact, uh, don't see us as clients, but rather as patients. That's absolutely right, Craig. Yeah, I, there are uh, quite a number of doctors, I think, that, that really got into medicine because they care and they want to see uh, not just uh, uh, the patient necessarily physically get better, although that is our, our goal. That's what we are doing this for. But we also want to see all aspects of health. The physical is just one aspect. There's emotional, relational, and spiritual health. And we want to address all of those. We want to see the patient as a whole person. Has your profession sort of succumbed to much of what we've seen in the scientific community in, in the last hundred years, say, uh, and that is those that would insist that there needs to be a brick wall as much as we've seen a brick wall between science and so-called religion or science and God? Has there been a trend toward that as well within the medical profession where, you know, it's okay if a patient wants to believe in God, but once they enter into the doctor's office, the hospital, the surgery room, uh, we need to leave God outside and never blend the two you know that is that is how I was trained honestly and um, I, I am ashamed to admit there was a time in my career where I um, I just thought the patients were sort of wasting their time wasting my time um, because I believed the surgeon's motto you know heal with steel or you know when in doubt cut it out and some of those uh, <laughs> uh, things uh, we use to just uh, it, it, it's it it's not all uh, for the patient. We, we have our own agendas that, that it, uh, as we move into medicine. Is there some tendency to maybe, uh, and I know the, the effort and work that needs to go into studying and preparing to become a successful surgeon of any level, certainly at your level, dealing with you know surgery on the brain, neurosurgeon, uh, is not a casual profession by any means. Is there a sense maybe within some within the medical community that, you know, why do we want to enter into praying for a patient or praying with a patient prior to a procedure? I'm the doctor. I'm in charge. I'm handling this, almost sounding as if at a level maybe, while not uh, openly recognized, almost a subconscious sense of, well, I'm not going to bring God into this equation because in my operating room, I am God. You know, that is... That is um I think very correct. Uh, unfortunately, that is how I saw it as well. I, I, I admit that in the book that I, I really didn't want to bring God in because it, it did sort of make things complicated. I, I wanted, to, I wanted to, to take the credit for the surgery and things like that. I mean, it is a tremendous amount of time you spend learning these highly technical skills, and so you actually would like credit for those. And um, and so to, to pray or to have someone think it was their prayer that did it instead of you, uh, at some level that's potentially offensive. But, you know, for myself, I realized, you know, after I'd done a technically perfect 11-hour surgery and the patient 
you know, died the next day of a blood clot, I, 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 that was one of the things that woke me up to say, wow, I can do perfect surgery, but I don't control the outcome. Mm. And so I think that we, we, you know, and if we're honest, then we start looking for, well, well, well what else is it? Well, what's happening here? Well, what about uh, the spiritual aspect of, of this case? Because something's happening. Uh, I did everything right, but, um, but I didn't get the outcome I wanted. Yeah, there, there, there's that having the, to kind of succumb to the realization that there's something bigger than me behind all of this. And your story is an interesting one because you, as you detail inside the pages of Gray Matter, struggled with this idea of to pray or not to pray and <laughs> what that would mean and kind of going back and forth. And then, you know, a, a wonderful, almost serendipitous chapter out of the book entitled Physician Heal Thyself. You go in one day to your own dentist. Yeah. <laughs> tell us tell us what happened when when that light came on. Well, I'm sitting in the dentist chair and um my dentist I needed to have a filling replaced. He draws up his syringe full of Novocaine and you know, I, Craig, I've spent a long time in training so that I could uh but I didn't have to be on the receiving end of those needles. So you're a neurosurgeon. I mean, come on. This is, this is a minor little dental procedure here, you wimp. Yes, but as, when it comes to injections, remember, it's more blessed to give than to receive. <laughs> <laughs> so I tense up, and my friend sees me. You know, he's trying to hide that needle down below the chair. You know how they Sure, do yeah. <laughs> Not quite notice it, yeah. <laughs> so I'm tensing up, and uh, he puts his hand on my shoulder, and he just says a short prayer. He said, you know, God, guide my hands, uh, you know, bless David, something like that. And then I felt this peace come over me. It was, it was just an unusual, I mean, the needle stick still hurt a bit, but it wasn't the same level of apprehension. It wasn't the same anxiety level. And on my way home that day, I said, you know, I really should be praying for my patients. I really feel like the Lord was speaking to me uh, as I went home. And interesting how your dentist didn't say, now, come on, David, you're a trained, experienced physician. You deal with surgeries significantly more, uh, you know, uh, dangerous and, and risky than this on an every single day. Be a man about it. He could have said any of those things. Yeah. But instead of doing that, he chose to do something very, very different. He 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 recognized number one his own need for God and the role that the Lord plays in this process, which ironically, as you point out, suddenly gave you a greater sense of of comfort. Exactly, exactly, and 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 so when I went to to I I basically said, well, wow, that you know that's as good as Valium. I mean, I should be giving people this. You know, why am I not at least asking them, not pushing it on them, but I think it's also very important to, you know, to ask. But I tell you what, that first time I decided to pray, I was terrified. I walked up the stairs, my heart was pounding, uh, and of course my busy preoperative area in the hospital was much busier than this dentist's office, where it was just, just he and I. There wasn't even a, a hygienist at that point. And, um, so I decide to pray with my patient of the day, and I walk up to her bed, and everything seems fine. She's got her two daughters there, but there's a nurse. There's a nurse, and there's no way I'm going to pray in front of a nurse. I mean, this, this I've decided, has got to be a top-secret situation. I don't want anyone to see me actually offer to pray with someone unless they think I'm, you know, one of those nuts or something. Of course, you're senior medical staff. You could have just kicked her out of the room. <laughs> 
I, I do right, but I was I was trying to be sort of very smooth about everything uh, while I'm introducing prayer for the first time, and so I'm trying to outlast her, and I'm waiting, and finally I you know say okay, I'll have to pray another day, and I, I back up to the nurses' station. Uh, I didn't leave. I decided, you know what, I'm not going to give up. Maybe if I wait a few minutes. And so, you know how we do. We pretend that I've got a page, and I pretended to be on the telephone, ah. and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so I wouldn't look too suspicious. It's, I mean, honestly, Craig, it was as if I were going to, you know, casing her room like I was going to commit a crime or something. I'm just sort of looking uh, like I was going to steal the woman's purse. I'm just waiting for the nurse <laughs> to leave. Finally, finally she leaves. And I, I scurry up, and just before I get to the bed, here comes the anesthesiologist. I turn right back around. <laughs> there was no way I was going to pray in front of another doctor. And, and so I waited a little longer. Finally, they left, and I went up to her bedside. And before anyone else could come, and I said, uh, Mrs. Jones, you know, would you mind if, if I said a prayer with you for your surgery? And she looked at her daughters, and they looked at her and shrugged their shoulders and said, fine. So I, um, I, put, I, I was thinking about putting my hand on her shoulder, but neurosurgeons are not very touchy-feely. We, we generally don't touch people unless they're under general anesthesia. They, uh, they have a covered with that blue drape, and then we, we use a scalpel. So, uh, but, I, but that's what had been done to me. This, my dentist friend had put his hand on my shoulder, and so I put my hand on her shoulder, and I said... Uh, her daughters moved in, they bowed their heads, and I just said, uh, God, thank you for Mrs. Jones. You made the vessels in her brain, and you can help me to fix them. And I just ask for skill and for wisdom in this case and for success. In Jesus' name, amen. I looked up. She was weeping. She's wiping tears from her eyes. Her two daughters are, are wiping tears away from their eyes. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, what, what have I done? You know, what, what, what is this power? And, you know, so I did what any surgeon would do at that point. I patted her on the arm, and I left it for the nurse to deal with. <laughs> <laughs> and here she came with her Kleenexes, handing them out. And I hit the automatic door button and opened those doors and, and went off uh, to my surgery, which, uh, honestly, I had more joy in that surgery than I have ever had in my practice before. Because I, the, the patients looked to me as if I'm God, but for the first time in my life I had said, Look, I'm not God. I'm very good at what I do, but I'm not God. But I would be willing to talk to him with you if that's what you'd like. Well, and the amazing thing about all of this, too, is that sense that, you know, as much as we as the uh, patients uh, want to know that you know what you're doing, we also want to know that you care. And that's one of the real keys here. If you've just joined our conversation, Dr. David Levy is with us tonight. We're talking about his new book, The Experience of a Neurosurgeon Discovering the Power of Prayer, One Patient at a Time, the new book called Gray Matter. A brief time out, back with some closing thoughts from Dr. Levy as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And back to our conversation. Dr. David Levy with us tonight. A look at gray matter. A neurosurgeon discovers the power of prayer, one patient at a time. As you develop the, the faith, the strength, the willingness to kind of take the risk, I guess we'd call it, doctor, and, and begin praying for your patients, what kind of a change have you seen come over, not just your practice, but your own personal relationship with God? Well, Craig, I think that, uh, that so many of us are burned out on medicine, and uh, I think it's, uh, I believe it's partially 
due to the fact that, well, we are to give glory to God, and I think so much of medicine is designed around getting glory for the physician, getting the referrals for the physician, and I certainly uh, have been guilty of that for many years. And so there's something about, um, as as we give glory to God, there, it, there is a change that occurs in me. I, I you know, just somehow the medicine takes on a different flavor. Um, you know, I can give you an example of a, uh, a patient named Ron who came in with uh, a, a problem in his, in the brain. He had a, a, a number of other problems. He was only 40 years old, and he had um, arthritis in his neck and his back. And so I, I began to ask him about um, his emotional health, and, and I asked him something. For the first time, I'd never asked a patient this before. I said, uh, Ron, is there someone that you can't forgive? And he's this enormous man. He's this uh, Marine, an enormous guy. And so he sort of looked at me with this, you know, very bold face. And I'm on one of those little rolling stools. And so I'm starting to roll away from him, (laughs) rolling back to the wall. And finally he said, my mother. And I said, excuse me. I thought, you know, maybe his drill sergeant or his father. And... He said, no, my mother. And I said, well, well Ron, what, what happened? And he said, well, my dad left when I was young, but my, uh, my mom, you know, shacked up with a number of different guys, and they would drink, and they would, uh, they would get in fights with her. And I got between uh, one of these men and my mother, and I got knocked down the stairs. And I, I stood up, and I said, come on, Mom, let's get out of here. And she said, no, I'm not leaving. And I've hated her. He said, I've hated her since that time, and I've... Um, and 30, that was 30 years ago. And so I said, wow, Ron, that's, that's what I'm looking for. But I'm going to ask you to do something really courageous. I'm going to ask you to forgive her. I said, uh, you know, I want to help you. Would you be willing to do that? So he, he paused for a few moments and then said, okay, yeah, I've, I've, I've hung on to this long enough. And so, you know, I led him through a, a prayer, a declaration of forgiveness um, for his mother and for this guy who uh, knocked him down the stairs. And, and then I said, Ron, um, you've forgiven. Is there anything that you need to be forgiven for? And he said, yeah. And so he, um, I said, well, who, who forgives sins? And he said, Jesus does. And so he, he began to confess his, you know, his sins. Because, you know, when, when people hurt us, we generally hurt others. That's just the way it happens. And so this man you know, walked out of my office, you know, like a foot off the ground. He, he felt just emotionally and physically so much better. He still had to have the surgery, and the surgery went well. But even six months later, he was still joyful because I had taken the time. Now, the interesting thing, when he, when he stood up uh, after I finished uh, the office visit, he said, uh, he said, I feel like calling my mother. Mm. And he hadn't talked to her in 30 years. And so, he, he, they had a family reunion. I mean, you know, that little um, conversation had an incredible ripple effect through that whole family because his mother had started going back to church in New York, and he flew back there, and other members of the family were getting together. And, and, and I think as physicians or even as friends, um, you know, we can, we can help each other forgive. I mean, if you listen to a friend or a colleague complain about their you know, their ex or their boss or something, uh, and you've heard it a number of times, say, hey, I've heard that enough. Let, let's forgive. Uh, let's, let's get this. This is not good for you. This is not good for your health. And so I, I really emphasize in the book the, 
uh, the health benefits of forgiveness. Certainly, it's had not only an impact on your practice, but your own personal life, too. Mm. It has, yes. I've, I've certainly, um, obviously, have to practice what I preach. So I, I um, uh, you know, I have to forgive. I have to, um, you know, I actually have to make time in my schedule, usually lunch hour, to, to spend talking with patients because oftentimes an office visit is not enough time. And so I, there's nothing I'd enjoy more than spending my lunch hour talking about a patient's spiritual concerns. It's, it's, a, it's just a beautiful time of my day. Um, and so, yeah, my, my life has changed, and I think, I think for the better. Well, we certainly appreciate you sharing with us tonight, Doctor. I mean, it, it just, just goes so nicely hand in glove with the topic we had in hour number one this evening of the importance of the church getting involved and impacting the world around us. And what easier, better place to start than to begin incorporating the power of prayer, not just in our lives privately, but also publicly as well, as Dr. Levy has done in his own practice. The book, Gray Matter, a neurosurgeon discovers the power of prayer, one patient at a time. The book published by Tyndale House and available at Christian bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as as well as through Amazon.com. And uh, once again, our thanks to its author, our guest today, Dr. David Levy. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.